The term smart city might bring to mind images from the Jetsons, maybe flying cars and robots serving humans. And while that's possible, cities are getting smarter right now in very practical and useful ways. Building a smart city is about its citizens and how their lives can continuously be improved through data and incremental change. The ultimate goal is very simple. Can we use the combination of this innovative thinking, the right technology solution, the right policy making and the right decision framework to ultimately improve the quality of life for the citizens. Smart cities is not about smartness. It's about better life for the citizens. Meet Samir Sharma, General Manager of Smart Cities in Intelligent Transportation at Intel. He leads a global team that works to drive new IoT growth categories and revenue streams for smart city services. In this episode of IT Visionaries, Samir defines the term smart city and how cities can harness the massive amounts of data they produce. Plus, he provides some case studies for what cities such as Singapore and New York are doing to increase the quality of life for their citizens. Samir also pinpoints key areas that cities that want to take the next step in a smart city journey must identify in order to reach their goals. All that next on IT Visionaries. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Samir Sharma. Now, Samir, your title is long. It's long to me. So I'm going to read it straight off LinkedIn. The Global General Manager of New IoT Markets and Smart Cities from Intel. Samir Sharma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. I got to ask right out the gate because I know what smart cities are and I know what Intel does. Intel makes, well, maybe I don't know what Intel does. To the consumers, Intel just makes chips. So how is Intel and smart city combining and what is your role in this combination of services and products? That's a fantastic question, Albert. So, you know, at Intel, you know, people know us from a consumer perspective as Intel Insight and primarily, you know, from a historical perspective, it was about PCs. The last few years, we've been on this journey to convert ourselves from a PC-centric to a data-centric company, which means any place where you have data that is created, analyzed, stored, transmitted, we want to make sure that we have the best computing solutions through our partners. How it relates to the work in smart cities, if you look globally, about 3 million people are moving into cities, into urban areas every week. That's the population of Chicago. So as a global community, we are creating about 50 Chicago's every year. And this trend is only accelerating. We might see a bit bit of punctuation with COVID-19, but this has been a secular trend for a long time. And if you think about the number of people, if you think about the number of devices, uh, and then you start thinking about data, cities are already generating a tremendous amount of data. Our estimate is this year, uh, cities will generate about 16.5 zettabytes of data. Everything from public safety cameras to traffic intersections to parking meters to information about energy consumption in a city and on and on. To give you a sense of how big that data is, if the cup of coffee that I just had after lunch to wake myself a little bit, uh, it represents one gigabyte. This is enough coffee to fill up the entire Great Wall of China. 
It is the amount of data <laughs> on 250 billion DVDs. And this is not even the total amount of data. This is the next layer, the, ad, the added layer, though this multi-layer data cake. Just the incremental change. Incremental change, exactly. Now you start thinking about the implications of this. And by the way, this is not a 2050 projection. This is already happening. So effectively, we are in the middle of this data tsunami. And we know one thing about data. It's not just about the data. It's about the insights you can glean from it and the actions you can take. So we've got to harness the data. And that's where Intel's entire portfolio from the edge to the network to the cloud comes in. And it's my team's job to make sure we stitch all those assets together in a nice cohesive narrative for our partners and the end users. So when we think of smart cities and what you're just talking about there, you're talking about huge population shifts. We already know infrastructure cannot scale like that. You said three million, you know, the city of Chicago is moving every week. Is that what you said? Every week, a new Chicago every week. Every week, a new Chicago every week. Well, we already know how long it takes Chicago to build roads, okay? It's not possible to support that. And so we already know smart applications and sensors are being used to help let's say with water consumption, with traffic flow, waste removal, all the major infrastructure-based needs, needs to make a city run are now becoming smart or people are trying to figure out smart solutions for it. I wonder, I was hoping you could share some of these uh, data-driven solutions that are happening right now with our audience. Because you know when you sit there and you think about it, like th- if a new Chicago is formed every week, how can data help me remove the trash? How can data help me move the, the cars? How can data help me create electricity, le- leverage electricity? Like it's, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about because like I think most of us think in the terms of traditional infrastructure and what traditional infrastructure is capable of. Yeah. I'll go two things. One, the example I gave of Chicago, this Chicago is being created across the globe. So it's incremental change in a given city. So therefore, we don't typically see brand new cities spring up in a week. Right. We see incremental addition to the urban population. And that's why it's also uh, hard to take a look at it and say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and suddenly the city will become smart because you've got to factor in uh, that these cities have existed for decades and some of them have existed for centuries. But your examples are very, were very intuitive. When I travel across the world, which I've been doing for the last six years, I've been running this business since creating it at Intel, and I talk to our customers, to the end users like city CIOs or transportation agency uh, leaders and so on. There are three big buckets of use cases that emerge that they consistently tell me, hey, these are our pain points. If these buckets of use cases can be solved or handled in a better way, it'll help improve the quality of life for my citizens. And those are around public safety, mobility, and sustainability. And let me now expand on that a little bit. Public safety is not just about crime statistics. It's about the fundamental need for the citizens to feel safe, to have that psychological safety that if I am walking or I'm traveling or I'm driving or my kids are out, that I can feel safe. And as you can imagine, in the last year, this question of public safety and its relationship to public health, that whole conversation has completely elevated in amplitude. This has become a big focus. I'll come back to this. Mobility is around the ability to move people and goods around a city, point A to point B. It could be public transit. It could be a shared ride. It could be a private vehicle. It could be looking at traffic intersection. It could be roadside unit equipment, which we'll get into a bit later. And sustainability, which has sort of over the last year also got intertwined with the need for resiliency. 
is around air quality monitoring, flood water management, uh, waste disposal in an, an ecologically efficient manner. All these use cases come underneath that bucket. And it's important to have these themes because from a technology perspective, while we need to hyper-customize the needs and the solutions for a given city, we have to find scale at the technology level because when we find scale, we are able to reduce the cost, make these solutions more affordable, and therefore that virtuous cycle of cheaper solutions will create more demand and more demand will result in more results and therefore more need for solutions. That whole virtuous cycle starts gaining momentum, that flywheel effect comes into being. So these are some of, some of these top areas and I'm happy to you know, do a deeper dive into any of these depending on your interest. No, yeah, let's dive in. Give us some examples of what is happening at the city level because you hear the term smart cities or you know future mobility. Those are those are nice terms, don't get me wrong, but I always feel like an anecdotal story that kind of takes me an actual use case of what's happening a little before and after gives our audience a really good picture of what exactly is you know, this data is enabling. Fantastic. So let me pick up my favorite example. Uh, before COVID, I used to make sure I'm traveling to Singapore at least a couple of times a year to witness what the, you know, the one of the most dense urban areas on the planet, how they're tackling and constantly improving the quality of life for their citizens. I mean, Singapore has about 8,000 people per square kilometer, if my memory serves right. And they are adding more people over time. And so they're always at the forefront of thinking about how can I harness all this data around me and apply it to practical use cases. 80% of the people in Singapore live in uh, government-funded buildings. So there's an automatic angle of how do I make their life easier, whether it's older people and getting them better access to medicines, or how do I more effectively use my public transit, especially now that social distancing within this public transit is becoming a requirement to slow down or prevent the spread of COVID-19 disease. So they're always looking at these kind of, an app or of applications. In fact, in the middle of pandemic, the Singapore government decided to increase their investment by 30% because they felt like technology investment is going to be at the heart of not just overcoming the pandemic, but recovering from it. So a great example that I learned on my last trip was how the public health interaction with the older demographic is being improved. A lot of old people go to the government-run medical clinics. And a lot of these visits are in Singapore. And a lot of these visits are mostly about renewing their prescription. So if it's just that, what they decided to do was to create a smart kiosk with a facial recognition capability. So this older person can come down from their building, get uh, authenticated, their medicine refill drops down, they pick it up and they go back to their house. Now think about what that does in terms of minimizing the exposure to somebody who's old, having them take public transit, go to a doctor. It helps save their investment in how many doctors they need to hire. It reduces the strain on their public transit. And most importantly, it makes for a better experience for this older citizen. And once again, I talked about technology, I talked about impact. They always start with the impact and how it can you know, make things better. Another example closer to home is in New York, there's a lot of work being done to measure the level at which the waste bins are full so that the garbage trucks that are traveling around the city can have a more customized route. They only go pick up garbage when the bins are almost full. This saves fuel. This makes their capacity to utilization better. They've also repurposed a lot of those old phone booths to make them digital kiosks and use that as a way of interacting with the citizens. Another great but very simple example is how the city of Copenhagen is 
interacting or increasing the interaction with the citizens through the app. But a simple example that I loved was they have canals throughout the city and you can go and you know, use one of those boats parked on the side of the canal. The only requirement is while you do that, you will also collect any garbage that may be floating in the water. There is nothing high tech about this. What it creates is a nice social contract between the city and the citizen, where in exchange for having a leisurely afternoon, uh, they are able to give back to the city. So there are, these are some examples. Some of them are technology focused, some of them are not, but the ultimate goal is very simple. Can we use the combination of this innovative thinking, the right technology solution, the right policy making, and the right decision framework to ultimately improve the quality of life for the citizens? Smart cities is not about smartness. It's about better life for the citizens. And I think that's something everybody needs to understand and keep in their mind as they think about cities of the future. So those examples are awesome. So I'm thinking about people that have recurring prescriptions that right now today, they have to go out on the street. If they, if they don't have that, you know, we don't have access to what Singapore's got. You're talking about just going up to a kiosk, recognize my face. It knows what I got. It sends me that back home. I can limit my interactions with others. That's pretty phenomenal for people that are worried about exposures. Then you have your example of the waste, how chips can help or sensors can help identify how how full a waste bin is, optimize a truck route. We already know these trucks are, you know, they're high labor, high cost. They got to run every night. But you telling me that I can run maybe less trucks because I simply don't have to make as many stops because I'm not emptying bins that aren't full. I can only have to empty bins that, you know, are full. My question for you is, who is leading the charge in these innovations? Is it private companies that are seeing opportunities to sell into cities or are city leaders asking this of their service providers? So, I didn't know if you have any idea of who is leading the charge on these, these major innovations that are going to change you know, the future of our cities. So Albert, the plain fact is for something as monumental and as impactful as cities, it's got to be a partnership. It takes a village to move this forward, right? You've got to have the push, but you also got to, got to have the pull, right? So the cities where I've seen the best impact is where you know, we have the city mayor, you've got the city CIO, you've got the right leadership to say, coming in saying, hey, I want to make an impact but they're not trying to do it all on their own. They're reaching out and building bridges, building partnership, building relationships with the private sector. A perfect example uh, that is closer to you know, home for us is uh, you know, when, when, when the pandemic happened, we created something called Pandemic Response Initiative, which was our way of saying as engineers who love solving problems, we want to roll up our sleeves and help the communities where we send our stuff, where our employees live and work, and so we have partnerships with multiple cities. One example would be with the city of Houston, where the mayor and the CIO reached out. And so we did two things. One is uh, we participated with the Rice University Startup Accelerator and funded certain cool ideas. One startup was good at analyzing the DNA material in the city wastewater. Mm. And using that DNA analysis, they could say, are there certain hot spots in the cities where COVID is spreading faster? So then you could go into those areas and create more awareness, reach out to people and so on. A second example would be the work we've done with the city of Portland in the past, where we have instrumented uh, together with a couple of other partners, the deadliest intersections to collect data, to figure out when are the patterns of a lot of pedestrian traffic and vehicular traffic intersecting based on the time of the day and the day of the week. And based on that, can we adjust over time, gain any intelligence to adjust the red light, green light timing between when pedestrians can cross, when when cars can cross. And if we have data to show that these intersections are deadliest for whatever reason, 
can we station the sort of first responders closer to where, the, where these accidents might happen? So these are all examples where I don't think somebody said, hey, I'm going to try and do this on my own. They started with the right intent. Right. They set out a vision and then they put a call out for partners and you know companies like Intel, but a lot of our partners, a lot of our competitors leaned in to say, yes, we can help because we are problem solvers, we've got solutions, but ultimately it's got to be a partnership. The thing I always tell my stakeholders is you've got to think big. You know, a city has the ability to impact every, you know, the life of every citizen in that city. So you got to think big, but start small. Don't try to do it all on day zero, because then you'll run into decision-making backlog. You run into funding issues. So start small and then move fast. Whatever you decided to do it fast, because when, when the citizens when the city leaders see the impact, they'll buy into this bigger vision. It'll give you credibility. And then you take the next step. And every successive step can be bigger than the previous one. And that's how you create momentum. When you encourage these first steps, these small steps, do you have any stories of you know, how much something changed after implementing a smart solution? Uh, I think to your example, you know, I'm thinking of that, um, that example you used of the dangerous intersections in Portland. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, that's exactly, I remember, so Aaron, our producer currently lives in Orlando. I used to live in Orlando and there was an area called Maitland Boulevard and I got in a car accident there, but it, I read that it was the most accident prone street in Orlando, let's say, right? So what was it, what were the numbers? Like what, what kind of numbers in regards to results happened after the implementation where a city can be like, okay, this worked here. I need to apply this somewhere else. I'm, I'm curious if you have any stats uh, it may not be that example of like a before and after kind of effect where a city just sees that number and they're like, okay, we can implement solutions like this for many other problems. One of the things I'm going to try and do today is give you a global perspective of everything that's happening. So let me pick an example that we did with a partner in China. Okay. In PRC, there's a lot of new infrastructure being created, including massive new highways that connect the mega cities. And one of our partners instrumented automatic uh, detection as well as charging of electronic tolls. And so now the cars don't have to stop. Now we have the equivalent thing here as well. Um, you know, in the US, now we have adoption of tags and so on and so forth. But this was a very efficient system that brought down the processing time for every car from 15 seconds down to two seconds. Now, 15 seconds, two seconds seems like small numbers, but it's virtually a 7x improvement. And it is the difference between a highway where you have a big backlog of cars waiting to pay toll and get through versus a free flowing toll system. Because the classic problem in a toll intersection is you've got four to six lanes of traffic expanding into 15 to 20 toll booths and then merging back. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And if you can make that point of potential friction, inertia flows more smoothly, you make the whole traffic go more smoothly. And so that simple example of a 7x improvement, which may not sound like much, 15 seconds to two seconds, you know, as, as, a, as a consumer, it's not the biggest thing for me. But from a system of systems optimization and how the whole traffic through the highway and then the set of highways optimized, it makes a huge difference. And, and there are tons of such examples. By the way, this is one thing I encourage. Measure, measure your impact, right? That's when you'll know that you're not just collecting data, but you're, you've completed the loop from data to insight to action that had the right impact. Yeah, I'm thinking about this right now. You know, when you drive through, because the reality is we don't have places as populated as cities in China. When I drive through the anywhere with this chipped in a toll, and I think to myself at the toll booths, 
they always make you, and I'm curious what you've, I'm going to dive in further into this. So I know for a fact, the modern sensor can handle highway speeds because I've driven on highways where it's like, you don't have to slow down at all. Then I've also driven in highways in the United States where you actually have to slow down. They recommend like usually a sign like five miles an hour to go through this thing. And I'm wondering, is the sensor bad or do they, are they applying those laws because there's toll workers and that's the problem. It's like they need a safe environment for toll workers. Cause I can see like what you're saying, just as a minor reduction or increase in that case of China, the time increase, that's cataclysmic, right? (laughs) Or a minor decrease in the case of China at scale, right? Seven seconds a car doesn't sound like much until you figure out how many cars are going to flow through this in a given hour. I'm curious, like, because it seems like this technology is, is it a cost thing? I'm curious why it doesn't seem to be, you know, when I hear these stories, I'm like, oh, this city should uh, jump on these opportunities, but it doesn't feel like it's scaling that fast or spreading that fast. I was hoping you could share some insight on what's, what's happening because the numbers seem fantastic. Yeah. So I think you've pointed out the lag between, you know, what's ready from a technology perspective versus when do we see that scale implemented in real life? And, you know, I'm going to use this question to make a very important point, which is the, the real differentiator almost in all these use cases is how much of edge computing are you bringing into the play? So how much compute capability you have at the point where the action is happening, right? whether it's a camera or a sensor detecting something, and how much are you reliant on sending the data back over the network to the cloud? Because when you do that, when you send everything back to the cloud and wait for a decision, you've got an implied latency in, in the network, right? There is some always some latency. You also sometimes have connectivity. I and mean, in a case of a toll booth, you can at least, because it's stationary, you can sort of guarantee or have a high confidence connectivity. But for something that's continuously moving, you cannot always assume connectivity. Finally, I think the third thing to import that is very important is, are you able to keep the data secure as you're doing this back and forth work? So where we are seeing maximum impact in terms of, hey, I'm able to do things that are responsive and do them real time, almost all those cases, we are seeing a high level of compute at the edge. Now, that doesn't mean cloud is not important. You obviously collect the data, you extract the metadata, you do batch processing to say, some of this data in aggregate needs to go back to the cloud. But for everything that's real time, that's latency sensitive, that's time sensitive, I have the capability to make the decision right there and then. By the way, this also dovetails into a very important trend that we are seeing, which is this move in infrastructure from, let's connect everything that maybe wasn't connected in the past, so let's instrument the infrastructure with smartness. Yeah. So it's able to do things intelligently. To the phase we are in right now, which is, can I rely on this infrastructure to be intelligent, to be adaptable, and eventually to be, have some level of autonomy? And that's where you know, we're going to see the maximum impact. When not only this infrastructure responding or programmed to do what it's supposed to do, but it's getting better at it because it's learning more about the job it's supposed to do over time. So this is fascinating stuff, like what you're talking about here, right? The, where do you invest? And it sounds like if you're not willing to invest in having modern infrastructure, high-speed edge compute at the source of the problem, then you're really limiting your ability to solve many problems at scale. Curiously for you, you know, you see this because you, you mentioned you travel the world seeing different cities and different countries. I, I used to. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's coming back. I believe in that. When, the, when enough people get the vaccine, 
So, I mean, we're putting you on a plane. You're going to be going visiting cities and learning the best of. Fingers crossed. Yeah. But I'm curious, in your opinion, what is it? I mean, because you've seen all these different nations. Certain nations, I'm sure, have more bureaucracy that prevent this infrastructure from going in. Curious, is it is it purely that? It's just that you have leaders that don't know where to invest or they can't invest because there's too many, let's say, special interests preventing infrastructure buildouts. What is stopping, I guess, for more cities from taking on this attitude of like, hey, if we upscale our infrastructure, we're going to be able to implement these solutions. I'm curious what you've noticed around the world. I think the biggest trend I'm noticing is uh, smart cities used to be sort of a CIO conversation. It used to be a technology conversation. I'm noticing, you know, smart cities, its implementation, addressing the top pain points of citizens. These are becoming topics and relevant issues for people, leaders to get reelected. And that gives me a lot of hope that when you have citizen engagement, when people are saying, I'm not just going to vote with my feedback, I'm going to vote with my actual vote. That's when I think things start to change because now leaders are incentivized to make sure they are implementing smart cities technology with the right policy framework, the right impact measurement criteria, and then making it a basis for, hey, I as a leader, I deserve to get reelected because I've done this thing. So I think that's becoming a game changer. We're not quite there yet. It's a transition, it's a journey, but conversations are shifting very, very quickly. You, you talked about the fact that different parts of the world have different ways of governance, different ways of making decisions. That is absolutely a factor in how quickly some of these things can be implemented. But I don't think that is an insurmountable challenge. I think between a combination of citizen engagement, you know, social media giving us the capability to give feedback and to sort of amplify our collective feedback, the e-gov initiatives that give us the opportunity to uh, ask for more responsive government, I think all these things are pushing and creating the tailwind that's helping us head in the right direction. I'll give you a simple example. In the Bay Area where I used to live um, recently, you know, one of the lights went out in front of my house. Like a street light? So the street light, thank you. The street light went out. Yeah. And so through the city app, I um, filed a request saying, hey, this needs to be replaced. And, you know, I was expecting it may take a week, a month, I don't know how long, but next morning, this gentleman drives up in his truck and he's changing the bulb. So I started talking to him and said, hey, how come I filed this late last evening? Are you already here? That's very good. But how did it all happen? He said, in the past, when you would call in or even send an email, we would have a paper file. And that paper file, you would have information to get collected. And then somebody would look at it and then try to figure out in which particular zip code are there more issues happening and then create a work order for somebody to go and replace all those bulbs. That whole process is now pretty much automated. So every morning, do I, not, I get a list of work orders and I get a path a GPS route that tells me where to go in what order and what work to perform. So he said, I'm happy because it helps me be more productive. And you are happy because less than 24 hours after you pointed out something, a particular issue was fixed. Very simple example, but that's the power of instrumenting, automating everything from our enterprise IT to the operational technology that we're building into the cities. How about what you're seeing in, I want to go back to the traffic one, because I feel like traffic's the one thing that everyone experiences and knows. And right. I mean, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure traffic is universally hated. I've never met someone who's like, oh, I don't mind it. Or it's almost universally hated. So 
What about when it comes to smart cities? Because mobility, you mentioned before, it's a big part of it. Um, if more people are moving to cities, infrastructure we know can't scale as fast. And when we talk about road infrastructure, right? They just can't build roads fast enough and they can't build sidewalks wide enough and they can't, you just, it's just hard to move people and the cars and more cars. And as you know, cars are getting bigger. They're not getting smaller, they're getting bigger, right? And so when you think about what is happening across the cities or the worlds that you've seen, you mentioned before that, that traffic flow sensors. What are some of the other things that are being done to handle traffic, because I I agree with you. There's going to be more, let's say, congregation. I don't know how to explain. People are going to live in denser areas. The desire to commute is so low right now. Like People don't like commuting. (laughs) It seems like such a waste of time. You know what I mean? Exactly. I'm curious what you're seeing around the world, because this is also, in my opinion, a huge problem, but there are also a lot of physical constraints. Like You can't you know what I mean? Like the laws of physics only allow so many vehicles per square foot, right? Like, so you have to work within the confines of physics. You've got to figure out formulaically in technology how to make the fit, like, I don't know, you're basically trying to make the physical, optimize the physical world, right? That's the big challenge. What are some of the things that you're seeing in that regard of mobility? You've set up the problem very well from a technology perspective, right? It's a demand capacity mismatch by time of the day, right? Morning commute, evening commute, rush hour traffic, and so on. Here's the thing, right? Our work in transportation infrastructure should not be focused on building more roads, building more lanes, and so on. It should be more about more effective utilization of what we already have. And the path to getting there is to create what we call effectively a digital twin of our roads, traffic intersections, parking spots, and say, what do I need to change? What behaviors do I need to incentivize so that the capacity utilization goes up and that peak capacity utilization comes down. That's really the mathematical problem statement because ultimately the purpose of transportation is not to build more roads. It's to get you from point A to point B as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So let me talk about the traffic intersection. And by the way, we could pick one of these topics and just talk for an hour just on that topic. So (laughs) I'll try and paint a quick picture here. Yeah. A typical traffic intersection in the U.S., will be reprogrammed in terms of red light and green light timings once every seven years. That's it? Yeah. And you know, and I know, and we know that people move in and out, people buy cars, new houses get built, new businesses move in. So demographics change all the time. Now, how can we get from once a seven years to real-time adjustment of red and green light timings? To me, that's the exciting journey. And we won't get to the other end, you know, instantly, right? But there are a few things we can do. On practically every intersection or on a lot of the intersections where there's traffic congestion, you have a traffic camera. Today, those are, that, that camera is primarily utilized to detect speeding violations or people jumping a red light. You also have a controller underneath the concrete that's managing the traffic signal timing, except that this was programmed as a fixed function capability years ago. Now, if you can combine the two of them, if that camera can become the eyes and ears of your traffic signal to say what's happening at this instant and what intelligence do I need to give to this roadside unit that has some level of edge compute, just these timings real time. So that if on one direction you've got, you know, a car line that's sort of, you know, 20 cars deep and on the other side, there's nobody, you know, let's open up the traffic in, in the direction where there's more demand. We can do that technically, but it's going to be a bit of a journey. Today, when you drive to a traffic intersection, the technology that detects that there is a car here was designed in the 70s. 
to rip it out and put a new one is a huge undertaking. Yeah. But to create a digital overlay is much cheaper, much more effective. And by the way, everything you need to do that, the camera, the computer element, yeah. you have it over there. Now you may need some upgrades. You may need some glue logic. So that that's the fundamental change in thinking we need, which is to say, let's stop thinking about billions of dollars needed to build new roads and new lanes. And let's start spending a few million dollars, which is going to be a fraction of building new physical infrastructure to get digital insights, to use the physical infrastructure more effectively. I get what you're saying. Why dig up the road? You got to stop traffic. You got to block it off. You got to circumvent traffic. Why bother digging the sensor up when you can put up a camera and not impact the flow of traffic as it is today at all? And then once it's installed and it's talking to a, a sensor of some sort, then now you've improved the flow of traffic without ever having to stop it. And you're saying it costs less to do this. Exactly. And now you take this idea at a traffic intersection and you apply it at a, at a city level and you say, this is a system of systems optimization problem. And suddenly by rerouting traffic, by changing the red light, green light timing, by making sure that if an accident happens, you're providing the appropriate level of first response and clearing the traffic by finding, helping people find parking more efficiently and effectively you can do all these things and they feed into each other and ultimately the whole system flows better as a result. So I'm thinking of different cities. I'm just going to use my home city. I live in Raleigh right now. And Raleigh's not different from any other city where you got the center, right? The city. And then every road kind of like spiders out of it, mm-hmm. right? All around the city. The roads spider out. That's where a lot of people live in the suburbs. And every day, as you said, especially pre-pandemic, rush hour, the spider web's full going out. In the morning, they're full going in. I've heard some hypothesis talked about how if you took the major, let's say, roads that go in and out of a city and made them all, for example, you know how there's certain traffic um, or certain roads where the lights can literally go red or green, meaning you can go one direction in one part of the day and the other direction on the other. They're saying like, why don't you just allow free flow, no, no red lights on the way out and make everyone take rights only and then optimize for the pathway. So now no one ever has to stop and wait. And I've heard of these ideas and I think to myself, that sounds totally possible. And like with the way you're describing it now, like with all these sensors and the stuff, this, this could be totally possible. But like, as you suggested, it also takes a huge level of investment and commitment from the city to actually implement any of these things. Yeah. I want to get back to that example you wanted to share in regards to like flowing the flowing traffic. Yeah. I mean, this example was actually came out of an interaction with one of the largest um, smart community developers in the, in the Middle East. And I think this example was specific to Dubai where they were trying to decide for a new commercial development, how much parking space should they create? And, you know, because if in the future, five years, 10 years from now, there's going to be a lot of autonomous cars. Does it really matter where the parking is? If the car is going to drop you off and go park itself, they could create the parking spot a mile, two mile away, where land is cheaper or more available. And my response back to them was, it's very hard to predict. I don't have a crystal ball. I have trends. I can give you some advice. And my advice would be, don't invest all that money in creating a lot of physical infrastructure. In other words, physical you know, parking spaces and multiple floors of parking garage and so on. Invest in some of that, but invest the rest in, in digitally instrumenting them so you can more effectively and efficiently utilize them. Because the value of your physical infrastructure will almost always depreciate, but the value of your digital infrastructure will only increase because with, over time, we're going to give you better AI. We're going to give you better connectivity. We will give you more over-the-air updates. We're going to give you more neural network models to do things more intelligently. 
and we're going to give you more autonomy and adaptability. So invest in aspects that give you more adaptability over time, not less. And I think that's sort of my advice to people as they think about instrumenting their infrastructure, which is build in some compute, build in the connectivity capability. And Albert, the perfect example of how this you know, sort of accelerated the adaptability, the resilience of our cities was when pandemic hit. Many cities which had smart camera, computer vision capabilities, they were able to do over-the-air updates to say, hey, I want to be able to see if people are respecting whatever I'm asking in terms of social distancing norms. In places like um, airports and train station and subway stations, are people in complying with the PPE requirements? Are they wearing a mask or not? Right? I want to get a sense of how the whole city is doing. And they were able to add those capabilities. Yeah. But if you had a fixed function camera that wasn't connected and all it was doing was recording in a local drive and then you would take it to the cloud, that capability is just not available to you. And so I think what we're seeing is while COVID-19 was very unfortunate uh, and is a very unfortunate situation, if there is one silver lining to this very dark cloud, it is the fact that a lot of the previous excuses about why this cannot be done or why this is difficult, uh, we were able to break through that. Yeah, or too expensive. Like you're justifying the cost. Because I think to what you're just saying, and that's what makes, for me personally, as someone who doesn't like it when things become obsolete or have to upgrade, I mean, I hang on to things for a long time. Like my favorite ability is durability. Like that's like the number one thing I think about when I purchase products and why I'm jealous of fellow, uh, you know, I'm not a Tesla owner, of Tesla owners is because I feel like their car gets better every year, but my car gets worse. <laughs> Like guaranteed. So like the way you describe it, right? If you have updatability over the air updatability, I mean, for a period of time, you're going to be able to keep up with whatever the demands are versus, you know, like you said, a fixed infrastructure type thing that could become obsolete very quickly. And great example that Albert, just a a nuance I want to point out. The examples you gave a car or maybe a phone or your laptop, these are consumer devices with a finite life cycle. Our infrastructure is, has to be built to last 20, 30, even 50 years. Right. So if you're investing this huge amount, building that infrastructure, invest both in terms of thinking and actually investing in technology that makes that infrastructure upgradable, adaptable, competitive, and resilient over time. Yeah. I love, I love what you talked about with just throughout the conversation, like your now the way you said about roads, right? This we don't need more roads. I, I think everyone's been on a massive highway before when no one was on it. It's like we have too much road, and you've been on the same exact highway when it's at full peak capacity. You're like there's not enough road, so the solution can't be roads. It's got to be something else, yeah. and it's how you flow traffic. And I love your perspectives here, Samir. I want to thank you for joining us on the show, and what I want to do also is bring us over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to us by Salesforce platform. It is the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Samir, this is where we ask you questions outside of work so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Fantastic. Absolutely. All right. You just said you used to live in San Francisco. Where do you live now? I live in Dublin, which is the East Bay part of the Bay Area. So I'm still in the Bay Area, but just moved. Gotcha. All the different places you visited, because you did mention you go a lot of places. What are some of the more interesting cities you've been to? My favorite city is Barcelona. It's extremely vibrant, great cultural uh, interaction. I'm a foodie at heart, you know, great options to try out a few things. At the same time, you know, because of the annual Mobile World Congress, there is a reason to go there repeatedly uh, as well and get some work done. (laughs) I love it. A little two for one. You got your conference and you get to have all the best food. Yes. You mentioned Singapore. What other cities are extremely admirable, both in their innovation and just a place that you just really want to visit, you like visiting? 
if I travel sort of mentally across the globe, because we can't physically travel right now, I would say, you know, Shanghai is a great place, Bangalore in India, uh, Copenhagen, I refer to it. London is a great cultural center. Uh, closer to home here, I love spending time in New York. I love the work that's happening with our partners in San Diego and in Portland. And of course, the Bay Area is, is an innovation hub. Uh, but increasingly, I'm also trying to visit the smaller and the medium-sized cities to get, get insights into, you know, what, what struggles do they have? What pain points do they have? What city needs the most help? <laughs> <laughs> that is, that, I'm going to say, I want to vote for Jakarta because I've been to Jakarta. Like, this is insane. Like, I, like, I feel like nothing can get done in Jakarta because it's so busy. I mean, for those who don't know, the government of Indonesia has talked about moving all government buildings out of Jakarta because it's that hard to work there. This is a hard question because, you know, to me, it's a bit of a question around where is the greatest opportunity? Yeah. And when I, when I talk to people across the globe, uh, I mean, you know, despite all the work that's happened in Singapore, they are not slowing down. Yeah. The pace of construction, the pace of investment is only, you know, going up. And so I think when I think about the largest opportunity, in addition to all the cities and then the parts of the world we described, I think South America is also starting to come up as the next sort of hub, the next frontier in all this innovation. I spent some time recently in, in Rio as well as in uh, Lima in Peru. And it makes you realize that South America is not a monolithic country in terms of how the governance is done, uh, the culture, the languages. There's a lot to learn and a lot to contribute in that part of the world as well. I'm going to go in full agreement with you. As someone who has visited both Rio and Sao Paulo, I can tell you Sao Paulo needs, they can use some modernization. I mean, it would go a long way. The traffic there is insanity. And uh, you know, some of the things you've talked about would go a long way. You also mentioned you're a foodie. So tell me. What are some of your favorite meals around the world? Uh, my favorite meal, uh, wow, that's a long list. Uh, <laughs> the, thing that, the thing that completely surprised me, uh, because I don't think about food just in terms of food, I think about the intertwinement of food and culture and history. And one of the most interesting cuisines I got to taste was this uh, fusion of Peruvian and Japanese food. After World War II, a lot of people from Japan moved to Peru, and that led to sort of a merger of cuisines. And some of the best, you know, restaurants across the world are experimenting with this fusion food. And somehow the Peruvian ingredients and the Japanese style of cooking and presenting lend themselves very well and create this, um, this delight that, that's wonderful, not just in terms of taste, but how, you, how, it, how, how it looks. And as we know, we, as the Japanese like to say, you eat as much with your eyes as with your mouth or something to that effect. That is awesome. I'm telling you right now, one of our co-producers is going to be real jealous because she was going to live abroad in Peru and work for Mission from there for a while before pre-pandemic. Of course, her plans got derailed. So she's going to be jealous on that one. That is an interesting tip. This is the first time I've heard of the Peruvian-Japanese fusion. That is going to be something I put on my list for sure. Happy to contribute to your list which I'm sure is equally long. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, that's how it goes, right? Your list of things you want to do is longer than the things you've done. That's always how it's going to be. That's a good problem to have, yeah. Well, Samir, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit of insight from what you've seen around the world when it comes to smart cities and IoT. Listen, everybody, it's not just a bunch of sensors, you know, I think a lot of people, like when we started the conversation, a lot of people, when they think IoT, they think, a lot of consumer-based use cases. So that it's awesome hearing how cities are you know, fundamentally changing the main areas. You mentioned mobility. Uh, I keep coming back to mobility, but recap for us real quick. What are the big areas? 
public safety, mobility, and resilience and sustainability. Listen, if you want to learn more, follow Samir on Twitter. He is always, we checked out your Twitter profile, constantly linking up and retweeting articles that are important in this area. He's a great source of information. Samir, thanks for joining us on IT Visionaries. Thank you, Albert. It's been a pleasure. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.